You are too kind. Thank you for those welcoming remarks. I had in mind to devote my entire talk tonight to the events of 1907, but I thought that would only interest the history majors. 1907 was, of course, the crucial year. That was the year of the syllabus of modernist errors, lamentably, and the encyclical Pascendi. Those were the decisive events. In 1910 came the anti-modernist oath. That turned out not to be a very decisive event. In all of France, only about two dozen priests declined to take the oath. And in all the rest of Europe, maybe two dozen more. So by 1910, the modernists had decided that their day was over, it was time to go underground. So the decisive events were in 1907. Now, I want to talk to you tonight about modernism, the recrudescence thereof, and maybe a word or two about the place of Christendom College as a response to that recrudescence. Can everybody hear all right? Okay. The word modernism itself can be taken in two senses. It can, take it, it can be taken to refer to an historical movement promoted by a relatively small group of people who held modernism in the second sense, namely modernism as a theory, well, if you will, as a heresy. Those who held modernism as a heresy were vastly more numerous than those who ever participated in modernism as a movement. And as a matter of fact, many of those who, at the turn of the 20th century, held modernism as a heresy, believed that the movement was futile. They refused to have anything to do with it on the ground that the Roman Catholic Church was incorrigible. It's the sort of modernist I like. Anyway, the term modernism will be used hereafter to refer to the system of ideas rather than the movement. So that when I say that someone is or resurrects modernism, I'm attributing to him a certain idea rather than any particular role in history. Now the topic before us tonight is partly about the past. We want to know what were some typically modernist views on the origin, growth, and development of dogma and on the authority of dogma within the church. So how does dogma arise and what is it worth in the opinion of men like Alfred Loisie, Frederick von Hugel, or Maurice Blondel? Our topic tonight is also partly about the present. We want to know what are some currently influential views on the development of doctrine and on the irreformability of dogmas. Again, how does 
dogma arise and what is it worth in the opinion of men like Henri Bouillard, Karl Rahner, Avery Dulles, not as he is today, but as he was in the 70s, Father Raymond Brown, recently and happily deceased, and many others. Finally, our topic is partially theoretical. We find that certain contemporary views resemble the older and condemned views. And we want to know whether this resemblance is important or superficial. After all, it is often admitted that modern theologians have re reopened questions studied by the original modernists and that today's theologians sometimes sound like those modernists but we are told that this resemblance is trivial and misleading. It is said that the original modernists were more or less wild men given to extreme views while um, people today Today's theologians are not like that. On the other hand, we will be told that the investigation of certain important questions was interrupted by the encyclical Pascendi of Pius X. He shut the lid on those questions but didn't resolve them. Problems were pushed underground, which the modernists in their own misguided way were trying to solve. So what has happened now is simply that theologians have looked around and see that the, the modernist danger is long past and it's time to once again open in a patient way those great questions which were prematurely closed in 1907. So while we're dealing today with some of the same questions, it is alleged that we are not coming to the same answers, and therefore it would be misleading, indeed vicious, to characterize any of today's theologians as modernists. Now insofar as this theoretical task is laid on us of determining whether the resemblance between today's theologians and the turn-of-the-century theologians is an important one or a trivial one, we are bound to inquire just exactly what modernism is. We need to know the core of it. What exactly made modernism tick? Once we have found the core of it, then we'll be in a position to say whether the resemblances between what goes on now and what happened then are important or superficial. Now, for an insight into what the core of modernism is, I propose that we can start by asking the question, what did modernists think about the evolution of dogma? Now, the evolution of dogma has really is a name for two different problems. 
and we need to distinguish them and keep them apart. The first problem is this. How did the set of dogmas expand over time? The second overall problem goes as follows. How was the whole set of dogmas to be interpreted? In other words, what was the history of the understanding of the meaning of dogma? Does everyone see how these two questions are different? The one simply asks, how come back in the time of Jesus there were only a handful of dogmas and today they compose a fat book? You could presumably come up with some sort of convincing answer to that question without ever facing my second question, which is, never mind how many of them there are, how are we to take them? Are they statements of fact? Are they revelations of feelings? Are they distillations of sentiment? Are they metaphysical truths of a revealed sort? Do you see the difference between these two questions? Okay, having distinguished the two, let's go back to the first question and see what the modernists have to say about the evolution of dogma in that sense. What do they think about the expansion of the set of dogmas over time? How could that be accounted for? Well, I want to point out that long before modernism ever arose, there was a theory on the ground, a very traditional theory about that. It can be found in germ in the 5th century AD in St. Vincent of Larens. It can be found in germ in St. Thomas in the 13th century. And it will be given a new twist or setting by John Henry Newman in the 19th century. The fundamental, I think, fundamentally, I think the classical position and Newman's are the same. And anyway, here is that traditional view. The set of dogmas, I'm going to call this, by the way, the explication theory. It says that the set of dogmas expands by virtue of an application of exegetical and logical analysis to the original data of scripture and tradition. This application of logic, exegesis, to scripture and tradition will be provoked, will be motivated by many different kinds of historical experiences, such as the rise of a new heresy. But the set of dogmas itself only grows by virtue of this application of exegetical and logical analyses to the original data of the faith. Well, as you can see, a theory of this kind stresses the logical continuity of the later and larger set of dogmatic statements with the earlier and smaller set. So the key for the traditional theory is logical continuity. Newman, in his famous essay on the development of Christian doctrine, put it in a nutshell. He said, quote, The question is whether the Catholic faith of today is logically as well as historically 
the continuator of the ancient faith of the fathers, unquote. That was his question. Is it logically the continuator? That's the question he wrote a whole book to answer, as we're going to see. That question couldn't even arise for Alfred Loisy, who was the poster boy modernist. In any case, this was the standard, indeed, the only orthodox theory of why the set of dogmas expands. I've called it the explication theory. Let me propose to you a second theory. It was held by some modernists, but it was already considered a bit old-fashioned at the time that modernism burst upon the historical scene. The second theory I'm going to call the organic growth theory. It takes the church as a relatively closed system like an organism, and it accounts for the growth of dogmas as a manifestation of the organism's unfolding life. In other words, the church would sprout dogmas the way a geranium sprouts flowers. Interior to this unique and supernatural plant, the church, is some hidden life, some hidden wellspring of experience or grace, which in a mysterious or vital way causes the Christian church to put forth new propositional expressions of what it believes. Just as the sap, the élan vital of some geranium causes that thing to put forth blossoms fair to look upon. Now this theory is not a logical theory, it's a vitalist theory. But it's an old-fashioned vitalist theory. It was invented, by the way, by a German theologian at Tübingen in the early 19th century, Johann Adam Müller. It's a vitalistic theory, but it doesn't deny that there might be a logical connection between one set of propositional blossoms and another. It just doesn't consider the question. However, the organic growth theory does involve some difficulties. If you consider a biological organism, you'll have to regard it as passing through stages. Infancy, then youth, then after the toils perhaps of a certain adolescence, maturity. And what comes beyond that? Well, I don't know, the broadening of middle age, maybe decay. Now, decay and so on are left out of this theory because our church is a kind of supernatural organism. Decay and death are left out, but we still have the stages of infancy, youth, and maturity. And that stage will be looked upon as causing uh, each stage of dogma corresponds to a certain stage of maturity, and that stage will be looked upon as causing the next stage. In a vitalistic theory, stage follows stage according to a time-directed law of development. Thus, dogma itself, quote, grows up, unquote, or, quote, comes of age, unquote. Now, this will have dangerous and difficult consequences 
when this old-fashioned organic growth theory of Merler's is replaced by a Darwinian theory. This we shall call our third theory to explain why the sect of dogmas expands over time. I call this the Darwinian or quasi-Darwinian theory. Here the church is no longer looked upon as a single organism, but rather as a kind of a biological species or even a genus or life form surviving over millions of years, perhaps under the impact of successive environments. Now, why does a biological organism change according to Darwin? It changes according to the impact of the environment. Remember, 19th century Darwinism is innocent of those highly scientific Mendelian genetic facts. Okay? The change was thought to be caused by successive environments. So the dinosaur will come into a new and colder age in the guise of a mammal or a bird. One way or another, the mysterious spring of life, which has manifested itself in warm and swampy times as dinosaur, will continue will evolve, will adapt to environment, meet the new need, find the new biological technologies to survive in a new and colder age as a mammal or a bird. So also the church. Well, of course, she does not respond to change of climate or change of food supply. But she does have an environment. Oh, yes. They are, the environment is the human culture of the time. The cultures of man, the Greco-Roman culture perhaps, the Latin Tridentine might be another culture, the 19th century modern culture of progress in mechanical technology might be a third. Perhaps our own present-day wraparound of electronic technology might be a fourth. Well, you can set up any list you like. These different cultures are considered as relatively closed systems, like total states of the environment. What they do is act upon the church and force in it certain mutations. Now, some of those new mutations need not concern us tonight. There are mutations merely of discipline or of bureaucracy. But another kind of mutation, equally possible, will be a mutation of dogma. For after all, a culture includes ideas. It's mental, not just physical. So there are going to be ideas working on the church which will force her perhaps to change her way of speaking, perhaps even her way of thinking. Now this I call not only the quasi-Darwinian theory but also and simultaneously the cultural plurification theory. Okay. 
It has two forms, one diachronic, one synchronic, but never mind that. The point is that once her environment is different, then in order to communicate her life to the new generation of man, she must find a way to express that life of hers in this new man's uh, symbols, his words, his thoughts, and then finding that mysterious conceptual translation will allow life to be communicated to a new generation which has been shaped by a new social environment. Now if it's strung out over time it goes like this. Well first of all there was Jewish Palestinian Christianity, a Semitic and Aramaic sect. Then early Christianity began to get out of its Palestinian womb and it encountered the larger phenomenon of Hellenistic Judaism which was a brilliant ferment of ideas and caused Aramaic Christianity to mutate into Johannine Christianity or into Pauline Christianity which may or may not be the same thing. Then as the church continued in her career she encountered the cultural environment of pure Hellenism. Now that, that forced her to enter into metaphysical dialogue with Greek philosophers. Philosophers even became converts and Christianity had to mutate into patristic Christianity. Well then along came the encounter with the Latin West. After that the barbarians and after that oh dear Tridentine Christianity. And then, after many factors which slowed things down, the church will be ready to mutate again into the modern Christianity of the sort which we have many people around today to help us design. All right, now that, that's the diachronic variant. That's stringing it out over time. You can also string it out in space. Okay, the church encounters Greek culture and moves to the east and encounters Syriac culture and moves further to the east and gets into India where she experiences the strains of Hindu culture, gets down to black Africa. First thing you know you need an African theology. You need an authentically Indian indigenous theology. In other words, the idea now is that in each place the dogmatic structure of Christianity has to be an expression relative to the local culture. Okay, So I don't know why we don't have today a Minneapolis Polish American theology. Perhaps we do. Perhaps we need a theology which articulates the experience of just this parish council as it tries in concrete community to express the life which is in us. Well anyway, if we have sufficiently examined the quasi-Darwinian theory, which is also a cultural purification theory, I'm going to give you one last theory. I call it the history happening theory. Here the essential point 
uh, is that the connection between later dogmas and earlier ones is neither logical nor biological, but simply historical. The question of what caused dogmatic development is solved simply by looking at church history and concomitant world history. This is to say, the work of theologians and even the work of the magisterium is epiphenomenal. It is, if you will, thinking after the fact. What really is causative is just what happens. Now this is incidentally the theory of, theory of Alfred Loisie the parade-cased modernist. And it was also the theory of his German counterpart and, ironically, chief sparring partner, Adolf Harnack. Now, what's crucial is what your theory of world history is. Do you have a philosophy of history? If you do, you'll have an attitude about how dogmas develop. For example, if total world history to you has an organic structure, if it's all as Hegel thought, if it's the self-unfolding through time of the world's spirit, then just as the sprouting of the geranium is the self-unfolding through time of the geranium's seed, so all world history will have this kind of organic structure and this theory of ours will simply be a variation of the second one, organic development. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you don't think that history has such a structure or any such overarching pattern, then dogmatic development will be as accidental as surprising, as discontinuous as history itself. By the way, this is the currently fashionable theory. It's known as the discontinuity theory of doctrinal development. It jumps. Father Raymond Brown, happily deceased, gave a speech several years ago in New Orleans in which he gave his version of this theory. He said, theology, you know, goes by fits and starts. An idea comes along which is fruitful and the channels of theology run in riot for a while. Well, then we get into a dry spell. Theology becomes a mere rivulet and dogmas don't develop very much and everything becomes frozen and fixed. But then great minds come along and the dams are burst open again. But this has an accidental, surprising, and discontinuous pattern to it, which is to say, no pattern at all. Now, I've given you four theories, which one way or another explain or try to explain how it happened that the set of dogmas got bigger over time. Most modernists at the turn of the century held the quasi-Darwinian position. And they held it without sharply distinguishing it from what I've called the history happening position because they all thought that history happening was the continuation of evolution by other means. Now Teilhard de Chardin got the world press for saying this 
when his stuff was finally published after his death in 1955 because by then it was novel again. But in 1900 it was the common coin. Of course history was evolution by other means. So the modernists didn't distinguish between the, the Darwinian position and the, the fourth one, the history happening position. They didn't have to. All right. I want to insist now that the modernist interest didn't only lie in this first question I have posed. It also lay in a second and distinct overall problem, which remember was this. How do we interpret the set of dogmas? What's the history of the understanding of the meaning of a dogma? Now here, there's a life and death decision. Because so far as I can see, there are really only two answers to this question. Um, I'll give you the orthodox answer first. It's very simple. You ask, what's the history of the understanding of the meaning of the term dogma? The answer is, there is no such history. There's no such history because there's no development of understanding about that. Rather, from the beginning of the church in Jerusalem to the present day, there has been one and only one acceptable, correct understanding of the nature or meaning of dogma, namely, the set of dogmas is a set of factually true statements revealed by God, which must be taught by the church without omission, and which must be professed by the faithful of all epochs without variation in meaning. Okay? In other words, this first answer to our second big question is very simple. There's no history to the question of what a dogma is. It's always been understood the same way. It's a revealed sentence or statement which cannot vary in meaning and is factually true. Maybe true of a realm of fact that one can't get at with one's earthly cognitive equipment, but that's neither here nor there. If this position is correct, then it will always be wrong and indeed ridiculous to say that a dogma is an expression of feelings or an expression of sentiment. Let me give you an example of that. In my opinion, an expression of feeling is a thank you note. Okay, how would it be when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, if instead of interpreting that to mean that there is such a thing as a God who is one and who is the Father Almighty, we would be interpreting this creedal statement to mean, quote, isn't it nice that I exist today? I conceive feelings of dependence upon greater things than I can touch. And so I say to 
whatever it is that inspires in me this feeling, quote, you're like a father to me, and I thank you, unquote. All right. Uh, the point that dogmas have always been understood the same way and have kept the same meaning over time was in fact defined at the First Vatican Council. The Council condemned as a heresy the claim that dogmas of the faith could, by virtue of the progress of science, acquire a meaning different from that which the Church holds and has always held. Okay. So, that's the first answer to our second big question. I want to go on to the second answer. What is the history of the understanding of the meaning of dogma? The second answer says, oh, there's a history all right. By all means, the understanding of dogma may, may be said to have passed through at least three stages. Maybe more, but at least three. First of all, we may speak of a period of infancy. In this period, there is the stage of the generation of religiously powerful symbols. The stage in which man expresses powerful myths which he conceives to be the symbols of otherworldly realities. The expression and organization of these symbols is guided in this infancy period by the imagination rather than by reason. So in the first stage, the church's teachings were understood to be religious symbols, symbolic of the invisible world, symbolic of the messianic kingdom, and thereby religiously significant, having a profound, vital, and moral import. Well, then came the second stage. The system of symbols was gradually rationalized by means of Hellenistic philosophy. And so, the faith became, if you will, a revealed metaphysics. The great and wonderful words of the Bible, which were such powerful symbols, were taken by this new stage no longer as symbolic, but as somehow literally true, philosophically true statements about a metaphysical realm. The religiously significant God of Abraham was denatured into the prime mover of Aristotle. But the names were not changed. Abraham remained in the system, but the religious guts were lost. Now, this second stage, of course, begins in the patristic period and culminates around the time of everybody's least favorite event, the Council of Trent. <laughs> All right, but now, after Trent and a period of dry sterility, we're ready to enter into a new stage. In the new age, the human mind becomes fascinated with history, 
not metaphysics, but history, and the critical determination of facts. The new age being entered is the age of critical historical consciousness. And the Christian mind forces itself to face oh, biblical criticism. Once one enters the new age, the new framework of thought, one sees that dogmas have to be interpreted as statements about historical realities. The crucial battle will be the one between the fundamentalists and the non-fundamentalists, no longer between Thomists and Scotists. Between fundamentalists and non-fundamentalists, the question will be, does the dogma of the resurrection refer to an historical fact, or does it refer to an event of, um, a transcendental character, one which no movie camera could have captured had it been in front of the stone, and which therefore, ah, despite its transcendental reality, um, is not historical. And similarly, of course, the issue between the fundamentalists and non-fundamentalists will be whether the virginal conception of Jesus is literal fact, historical fact, or not. Same with the conversion of St. Paul and a gazillion other things. Now, the modernist says that as soon as one faces the difficulties of biblical criticism, one sees that dogmatic statements cannot be taken as statements of historical fact. Yeah, 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 there was an historical Jesus but he never did much. It becomes very mysterious why anybody ever followed him because he did not multiply the loaves, he did not feed anyone with the fishes, he did not predict his passion, he did not foresee his death, I don't know, maybe he never went to Jerusalem. In any case, he never did much of anything. As soon as you understand that dogmas can no longer be taken as statements of historical fact, which is now the kind of fact which is interesting for modern man, one is no longer interested in whether dogmas might somehow reflect great transcendental metaphysical facts. That's no longer relevant. What's relevant now is history. What's relevant now is self-consciousness, the critical problem. And the question is, does dogma stack up? as a statement of historical fact. And by the time we get through rummaging through the sources, it looks like the answer is no. So then what do we do? In this final stage, this third stage, there are two possibilities. Well, the first possibility is that you give up this religion business. You join the Lodge. Or in Italy, you join the Carbonari. Or in America, you join Richard Dawkins' little crusade. Religion is bunk. The Catholic Church is an age-long deception. Ungrounded myths were foisted upon millions of people, lost in superstition and darkness. But now, thank goodness, the textual critic has come along and liberated us from all that. And we're ready to build a bold and new future upon secular values. Now, there is a problem, as you all know, with that sort of person. That sort of determined, militant, anti-clerical, secular atheist. The trouble is, he's boorish.
Now, you may think that's an awfully trivial observation on my part, but it isn't. In the 19th century, atheists were considered extremely boorish by cultivated persons. You see, a cultivated person can distinguish between the beauty of religion and the so-called problem of the truth of religion. A boorish, atheist, anti-clerical rabble-rouser is one who can't make that distinction. Oh dear, the cultivated man, the man who has read too much literature to be really comfortable in a meeting of the Masonic Lodge, Um, is a man who has read enough literature to see that religion is fundamentally valuable, it's beautiful. Religious people are in fact the interesting people. Now look, ask yourself, would you rather have dinner with St. Francis of Assisi or with Robert Ingersoll? The question answers itself. The religious people are the beautiful people, the interesting people. They have values of poetry and mysticism which they can bring to their statements about the world, and therefore it's perfectly silly, a modernist will say, to think all of that beauty should be thrown away because of a few little scraps of parchment and scratches on a page in some archive somewhere that proves that the resurrection never happened. Okay. So in this new stage, We've been through two so far, now we're in a third. The first was the stage of religious symbol. The, the intermediate second stage was the stage of revealed metaphysics. When dogs were taken as metaphysically true statements and now our experience of the critical problem has brought us to a new stage. It is this, dogmas are symbols of man's own religious consciousness or the exigencies of our religious consciousness. Dogmas are symbols of something about man. Not the next world, not the eschaton, certainly not some realm of timeless metaphysics, but symbols of something important about man. Thus modernism proposes that a new stage of understanding of what a dogma is, is possible. And this new stage is defended in curious ways. Modernists will always tell you that they're restoring the authentic religious sense of dogmatic statements. Restoring the original symbolic value against all the rationalism that came in between. So the modernist pretends to be at once a restorer of authentic religious value and a settler of embarrassing historical problems by way of a wonderful new account of the symbolic meaning of dogmas. All right, this last stage I'm going to call the neo-symbolic stage. It can be rationalized as anything you want depending upon what interests you about man. Remember, in this stage, dogmas symbolize something interesting about man. 
Now, if you were a modernist at the turn of the century, what interested you was uh, man's religious sense or potentiality. Dogmas were symbols of that religious potentiality and its encounters with the several cultures through which man has lived. That's classical modernism. But suppose that what interests you in man is not his religious sensitivity, but his need to decide, his need to assert himself through existential decision. This will produce existentialistic modernism, as in Rudolf Bultmann. The symbolic language of the New Testament becomes a series of symbols addressed to man's existence as a self-actuating decision-making being. Well, suppose that sort of, I don't know, continental existentialism leaves you cold. Suppose you think that the most important thing about man is his capacity to fashion out of the long-standing misery of this world at last a just society. Now man's greatest potential is the ability to take hold of himself, become the master of his destiny, and make a new world in which freedom, justice, equality will prevail, then the result is Marxian modernism. The dogmas of Christianity become symbols of the revolution or something connected with the revolution. Jesus becomes a revolutionary leader. The poor of the gospel who are called blessed are, guess what, a symbol of the proletariat. Well, if that in turn leaves you a little cold, well then, if revolution seems a bit too rough and tumble, like if you're a local nun working with the parish council, well then, what interests you about man, perhaps, is the phenomenon of love. <laughs> Community. Togetherness. Growing together as we experience one another. If that's what interests you, then your modernism will be a sociological modernism. The statements of Christian dogmas will be symbols of life in community. God and the dogma that God is love will be a symbol of the fact that we realize ourselves in love. And it's in loving one another that we find our being as persons. So that the secret of personal being is love. And that's why the Bible says that God is love because he's the ideal personal being. See how this works? Well, what am I getting at? I've distinguished off the top of my head five or six kinds of modernism. Am I telling you that modernism is not one thing? Did you all get out your butterfly nets to come to this dinner tonight to catch exactly one gaudy colored beast and by now telling you that we're facing a field of different beasts? Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. This is a point I want to close on. If you're looking for that one thing which modernism is, 
on the level of what modernists believe, you're not going to find it. It's not essential to modernism to believe that the dogmatic statements of Christianity are symbols of togetherness or of the revolution. That's immaterial, really. The essence of modernism, what makes it tick, what makes it run, is to believe that those dogmas of Christianity can be taken as symbolic language at all. In other words, what makes a modernist distinctive is not those ersatz and substitute dogmas which he really believes, because they could be anything. After all, von Hugel and Loisy and Tyrrell fought all the time, cat and dog, over what to actually believe. No, that's not the issue. The issue is, what do you say dogmas are? If you say they can be symbols, if you say that what was previously taken to be their literal meaning need not be their real meaning, if you say, in other words, that a dogmatic proposition can lose its original reference, or its original sense, that what it was about, say God, God is love is about God, right? If you say that a dogmatic proposition can lose that original reference and come to be about something else, about human togetherness or the revolution or man's religious sensibility, then you are a modernist. It doesn't matter what you say it's about so long as you say it can be about something other than what it was originally taken to be about. Modernism, you know, is unique in the history of heresies. It's the first purely metalinguistic heresy. I have to explain what I mean by that. We divide all language into meta-language and object language. Object language is the language you use to talk about things. Meta-language is the language you use to talk about language. When you talk about propositions, for example, if you say that they're true or figurative or immutable, that's meta-language. But when you talk about things, for example, to say that Christ was virginally conceived, that's object language. Now, every other heresy in the history of Christianity has denied something in our object language. It denied that God was really, was really three. It denied that the Pope is sovereign in the church. It denied that man needs interior renewal to be saved. It denied, or rather, it insisted on something false in the object language. For example, it said that God predestines people to damnation. Modernism, however, has the unique proposal to deny nothing in the object language of Christianity. Leave every dogmatic statement standing just as it is, but somehow change the meaning of it all. Every item in the creed stands letter for letter the same. The only thing different is that the creed is no longer about facts. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of togetherness or something. So modernism is the first purely metalinguistic heresy. That's why 
At the beginning of the 20th century, it touched everything at once. That's why Pius X noticed that it was like the amalgam of all the heresies. It was as if everything had gone haywire at once. On every question, everyone had all of a sudden gone mad. It's very simple. The point of error centers on the very meaning of what we do when we say that this proposition is a dogma. That's where this heresy lies. Now, if I, would had, had, if I had time, I would show you that a famous article by Raymond Brown on the virginal conception of Jesus repeats exactly the metalinguistic thesis of modernism. I could show you the same for various key passages in Father Avery Dulles's now, I hope, repudiated book, The Survival of Dogma. I could show you the same in the 1940s French school of the Nouvelle Théologie. I could prove to you, if I had the time, that the current crisis in theology is in the crucial sense namely, in the sense of its metalinguistic theory of what dogma is, exactly, exactly modernism. The resemblance is not superficial, it's essential. The differences are superficial. Our current batch is in some respects less radical and in some respects more radical than the old batch of modernists. That's not the point. The point is, their claim that the dogmas of the church can acquire a different meaning from the one which the church has always held. That's why on the close of Vatican II, everything again seemed to go haywire all at once. It was in that maelstrom of doubt about what on earth to cling to that this college was founded and that its theology department was set up in the hopes that it, with all of the other departments in the college, would be some kind of remedy, some kind of answer, some kind of immunization of the mind against the seduction of this metalinguistic heresy. Whether we as a faculty have achieved the ambition of those days when we are founded, when we were founded, I have to leave up to you the beneficiaries of our efforts. And I congratulate you on having survived four years of those efforts. Thank you very much.